Well, good morning, Journey Church. How are you? Good. May move my stand over here. I have found the sweet spot on stage. There is an air conditioning vent directly over my head, and it feels wonderful. I didn't know it was even here. This is great. Thank you all for coming out this morning. Thank you for bringing your children with you. Uh, how many of you like to see your children go on to Kidmo right now? Kidmo kids, you're dismissed. For you guys that might be guests, welcome. Um, as you see the children exiting, oh my, there's a lot of them today. Somebody's going to have fun. Um, you may see the children exiting. We have specialized children's programs over here for up through the, uh, what is it, fifth or sixth grade we go through? Go up through fifth, sixth comes with you. So up through fifth grade on Sunday mornings, we have specialized children's programming over there. If you're a guest, you're welcome to let your kids go over there. They have a great time, and, and we also teach quite a few relevant things that will help them out in their young lives. But again, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, David did something I often forget to do. I didn't introduce myself usually. I just assume everybody knows me, but I'm Scott Pollard. I'm one of the teaching pastors here along with Mark. David teaches, have others that teach. Uh, so you may see a variety of folks on stage, depending on when you come here. Uh, Mark does the majority of the teaching, but we all rotate in and, and have our turn. And how many of you have been enjoying this series on David? I think this has been one of the, the most well-liked series we have ever done. And I really like it. It's very practical. And we don't think about it. There are so many things in David's life that will directly pertain to our lives today, even you know, some 2,000 years later. We're still going through the same things that, we're, that our Old Testament heroes, as we call them, went through. Some of them more successful than others. And that's one of the things I really like about the story of David is both his success and failures are included in the story. There's nothing that's glossed over, you know. People often ask, how do you know the Bible's true? Well, if I were writing it, I wouldn't include some of the gory details about the failures of some of these folks, would you? I would gloss over that. They were just really good people, you know. But we do this. We do this because, you know, God wants us to have the complete story. and He wants things that are relevant in our lives because he knows all of our lives are messy, that we have problems, that we have family relationships that go sour. He knows all that. So, so many years ago, he prepared these lessons for us so that we would know and that we would have something to apply to our lives. But this morning, we're going to talk a little bit different take on a familiar story. I think most of you have heard about David in a and a girl named Bathsheba. How many of you have heard that story? It's a very popular Bible story. It's taught often. But I want to take a little different look at that. And what we want to talk about today is that distractions will turn our hearts away from God. That's really the whole thing through these messages about David is to look at his life and look at his relationship to the Lord. And we want to see how he relates to God through both good times and bad. And this morning we're going to talk a little bit about distractions. Now, the first thing I want to do is set up a little bit of the story. Just going back, and we're going to go back a little bit in time to get the whole story about David and some of his wives and things that were going on. But the first thing I want you to realize is that God had laws regarding Israel's kings. Okay? God just didn't say, okay, you're king. Figure it out. No, God had some rules because God realized that, that this was not only a king. This, this king was representing him. So it wasn't just a, like a president or someone that was elected or something like we're familiar with today. This king was actually appointed and anointed by God. So he wanted to be a very special set-apart person, and he had some rules. Well, one of the things I think that maybe you've picked up in our series so far, maybe you haven't, is David has more than one wife. Have y'all noticed that? I don't know if you've caught some of the names and stuff. These Old Testament names may be a little tricky and you don't remember them all. 
But David has more than one wife. But I want you to look at what it says back here in Deuteronomy. This is one of the commands. There's a whole list of things that God says. He says, this is about the king. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Okay? That's pretty clear. How many wives should he have? Not a bunch, right? I mean, we, we have to realize we lived in, in the Old Testament in a time where polygamy was the rule of the day. Now, usually that was for more wealthy citizens in that time because you couldn't afford to have multiple wives. How many of y'all can afford to have multiple wives? Uh, don't be laughing now. You guys are going to get in trouble. But, you know, you can't do that as a lower person in society. So a lot of this was... was was, was people that were upper ranks in the social rankings of the day, and they were royalty and kings and queens and all that sort of thing. But it was a, a society where you might have multiple wives. And God realized that. He realized that there could be problems due to having those multiple wives and all the things that it would strain relationships and all that. I mean, you know, it sounds like what's the, the TV show, My Sister Wives or whatever, where the guy has multiple wives. And I, I, I mean, it sounds like a reality show based on the Old Testament because he did have multiple wives. But let's go back in time a little bit and start our story. We want to get some background of who David's wives were, where they came from. We're going to focus on two of them, especially this morning, and go back and get a little bit of the story of Saul. That It's a little bit of a recap, but also it's very important to set up today's story about David to understand some of this. So, we're going to be in First and Second Samuel today, mostly in Second, but going back for this story and picking up in First Samuel chapter 18. Uh, then Saul said to David, Here's my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight for the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Well, let's pause right here. Why was Saul wanting to give his wife to David? Well, he's figuring... I will elevate David in the ranks here in the kingdom, and I'll send him out, and hopefully the Philistines will kill him, and I won't have to. That's exactly what he's doing. But now, and David said to Saul, Who am I, and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be the son-in-law to the king? In other words, he doesn't have royal standing. Why in the world would you pick me in this, this role? But at the time when then time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, Mahalotite for a wife. Okay, so here's the story we're starting out with. Saul wants David and his family kind of to keep an eye on him and guide him in the direction he wants to go. He's going to set him up also. He's going to figure out the more I can keep this guy in battle on the front, the more likely he is to die. And I won't have to hassle with him because I know he wants my throne. So I'll give him my daughter. And then, okay, David... You'll fight my battles, and you'll go represent the Lord before our enemies. I'll give you my daughter Merab, which was the custom. She was the oldest, and that was the first one to leave the house, and that was the one you gave away, so to speak. Well, when it comes time that David says, okay, good deal, I'll do that, Saul switches course already and says, hmm, I gave her to somebody else. Well, that's kind of treacherous, isn't it? That's because Saul was a lying and treacherous king. He was not representing God well. That's the reason the entire story that Mark set up last, last week that we talked about the demise of Saul, that's the reason he came to the point in his life that he did was because he was not representing God well. He was a liar. He was treacherous. He was always trying to trick David. He was always out to get David. So what happens? The eldest daughter that should have been David's is given to somebody else. And like, you know, okay, well, I've got other daughters, David. 
Let's talk about Michael. I've got another daughter. Well, now, let's set this up in relationships to start with, okay? Would you feel especially good if you were dad's second daughter and you're like the guy's second pick? How would you feel? You know, that's like going on a double date and you like the other girl better than you like the girl you're dating, isn't it? Now, how, how would that make you feel if you were one of those girls? You know, you're going to feel devalued and everything else. But we see in Scripture that, that Saul's daughter, for whatever reason, loved Michael, or Michael loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul's thinking, hey, cool, I've got a second daughter here, and she actually likes the guy that I'm going to try and marry her to. So she said, he says, well, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Again, not trying to do the right thing, it's how can I trip David up? I will give him this daughter. She will be a snare for him, and hopefully these Philistines will kill him for me. So therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. More lying and treachery. How much do you think he loves you if he's wanting to send you out to the battlefront and get you killed? You can't believe anything Saul tells you. He is a treacherous liar. That's one of his main character faults. And he just continually sets David up to fail. But yet, one of these guys that says one thing, and does another. Have you ever experienced that? He's a sweet talker. He's a smooth-tongued guy. He is constantly saying, yes, David, we love you. We value you. We, we want you to represent our organization well. We want you. Has anybody experienced that in the business world? <laughs> you know, people don't always tell the truth, do they? Sometimes they have ulterior motives, and it's usually something about self, and we're going to talk about that a lot today. That's one of Saul's biggest problems with self-preservation. He did not want anyone else to threaten his position. So he's, again, trying to set David up for failure, but telling him how much he really wants him to be his son-in-law. So he does then say, well, there's a, there's a little condition on getting Michael. This is uh, 18, verse 20. Then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price, no dowry, whatever you want to call it, except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Again, okay, you can marry my daughter. I see she loves you. I think this will work out good for me. You just got to go kill a hundred of the Philistines to get her. Well, that's a minor price to pay. And you just got to go kill a hundred guys or so to, to get your wife. You know, that's the way things were set up in the Old Testament. There was a price for the bride. It could be livestock. It could be this. And the king just kind of ups the ante by saying, you've got to go kill these fellows. So what's David's response? And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. So David says, not only will I kill a hundred of them, I have killed two hundred. Here you go. Here's your ransom for your daughter. I'm going to marry her. Now, there's one really telling part of this verse that I noticed in studying this. Look at what David did in the very first part of that verse. It says, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Notice it pleased David to be the king's son-in-law no matter who he might have to marry. Do you think he was in love with Michael? No. He was in love with being 
the king's son-in-law is what he was in love with. He thought, this is great. You know, earlier when we were reading, David was telling him, I have no relatives. I have no royal lineage. I'm, I'm outside of this. Kind of hard for us to understand today in the way we, we have society. But it would, be, it would be perhaps like being invited to be a high-ranking official somewhere, but you have no political experience. And they say, well, just come on board. Come, come help us out. You know, this is great. We'll take care of you. That's kind of where David was at. He, he had no experience. But this was a way in. You know, all of us, to some extent, like to be recognized and like to have power over others. It's just human nature. And when given this opportunity, David's like, well, sure, I'd like to be the king's son-in-law. He's got a daughter here. I'll take her. Seems kind of cold, doesn't it? It doesn't really seem like a great way to start a relationship, and we'll see why. But let's, let's get a little bit of background here. I, I found this, just who Michael is, this daughter. Do you remember the story of Michael a few weeks ago we talked about? Again, this was in relationship with, with Saul, his second daughter, David, okay? Even while she was married to David, Saul was trying to kill him. Do you remember the story where he goes out and he tries to send his men to kill David and Michael covers for him, lets him escape by night and puts like a dummy in his bed to make it look like... And Saul's like, I don't care if he's sick in bed. Bring bed and I'll up here and bring him before me now. I'm going to kill him. Well, that was the, the, the wife here. This was Michael. This was the second daughter. This is who we're talking about throughout this story this morning. So just to give you a little more context, but Michael was the younger daughter of Saul, Israel's first king. Her mother was a Noham, and she became David's first wife, and was given, but was given to Faulty. That sounds like something's wrong. Faulty, the son of Laish of Galim, for a while, but was recovered by David. Again, look, she's being passed around like property. She was, the, as the aunt of her sister Merab's five sons, remember she had an older sister Merab and had five sons, Michael cared for them after the somewhat premature death of her sister. So she is an aunt taking care of her sister's children. And Michael, although a princess, does not appear to have had a very commendable character. Desire for prestige, indifference to holiness, and idolatry mark out this Jewess who knew the covenant of God, yet persevered in idolatrous practices. Okay, so what this is saying and giving you some background is she has some some decent character traits here. You know, she is taking care of her her dead sister's children. She's pitched in to help the family out. But, you know, how would you feel being valued? Because, look, she is being passed around like property. Why is in the Old Testament we're simply property and this is the way it went and you were passed around. And so. This is kind of the picture we're getting of who Michael is. Now, one of the things we haven't explored is, why do you think she loved David? Well, ladies, tell me what's attractive about David. Somebody surely can tell me something. He can kill bears, barehanded. That's, that's bears, barehanded. That's really awesome. What else do we see about him? He played music. He was a musician. He was a rock star. I mean, basically, in the Old Testament... He was what we would call a celebrity. What else? Oh, his physical description. Somebody has called on one of them. He was a good-looking guy. He's a good-looking, hot musician that kills bears with his bare hand. Ladies, why would you not want to go for this guy? I mean, my goodness. He's got all the attributes you would want. Those were the things that Michael was attracted to. Now, going to relationship advice. Is that the basis for a really good relationship? No, no, no. 
How, when you think of rock and roll musicians, how many of you think happily married celibate guys that never cheat on their wives? No, that doesn't, that doesn't seem to come to mind, does it? You know, if you look at the celebrity news, it's who's getting divorced this week, you know, for the third time. And oh, by the way, I've got one in layaway back here that I'm just waiting to bring out when I get rid of this wife. That's the way it seems to work. So unpure motives and not putting God first in a relationship will destroy your family. And that's what we're getting ready to see. Michael has started into this relationship, as has David. David's is a marriage for convenience and power. Hers is a relationship and a marriage to take advantage of those things. You know, she's married a rich guy. Karen, have you married a rich guy? No, no. <laughs> yeah. Anybody else? Have, anybody married a rich guy? This, this is just this is a wonderful life. You know, I was watching Karen actually. I'm going to move that thing because I'm going to kill myself. Um, Karen was watching one of the, I think it was House Hunters or whatever. What, or with, they were remodeling house, buying the house and remodeling it. Type. Guess where they were at last night on the show? They were on Lookout Mountain. Woo, doggies. And they were talking about this great little community where it was, you know, you had to, there were only so many square blocks of community, so the houses were high. The cheapest one they looked at was $600,000, okay? And the wife and husband, they are naturally not agreeing. They had different goals in getting this house. The husband's was, guys, you can appreciate this, it's a move-in ready house that I don't have to do anything to. Amen, right? That's the whole thing to build a new house is you don't want to have to do anything. Well, every house now that the wife looks at, well, I don't like this. I don't like that. I want marble throughout. I want marble floors. And the husband's like, this is a great kitchen. I love it. She says, I don't like it. It needs more marble. She walks in to the closets in the home. Every closet that she walks in, she complains about. Now, these were closets that Karen and I would kill to have. They had room for all their clothes and everything. You know, Our walk-in closet is literally a walk-in closet where your clothes touch your arms on both sides, okay? So she is looking for these, these closets. Her closet at home is bigger than our bedroom is, okay? And finally, the realtor, you know, they, they flash back and forth talking to the realtor and talking to, the, to the, the buyers. And the realtor finally says, this lady is never going to be happy because nobody has a closet as big as she has at home. She's just being unreasonable. But she was all about appearances. She was all about, I want my friends to come over and I want them to pat me on the back and tell me how wonderful my home is and how beautiful my marble floors and everything I have are. That was one of the things that it seemed to be driving her. Now, maybe that's an unfair thing. You can't tell from TV. That's edited and everything else. It made for good drama in the show between the husband and wife and the realtor. Who knows whether it's all true or not. But just to illustrate that, that's the type wife that Michael has become. She is all about appearances. She is all about how do I look in front of my peers? How does my husband look in front of the peers? And what does it do for me in the social ranking? That's all it's about for her. So let's fast forward a little bit. Things have been going pretty good for David. He's defeating enemies. Saul's dead. All these things have happened that we've been talking about. He no longer is on the run. So, so look, David is bringing the ark back into the city. This is a big deal. The ark has been captured. He's being brought back to its rightful place. And David is the one that has orchestrated its return. So listen to this. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in, our heart, in her heart. 
Wow. Now, here's this guy that we just went a few verses ago that she said she loved, okay? Now she despises him with all of her heart. A couple of things, I think, play into this, the reasons that she despises him. Now, now first of all, how many of you ever heard this said, and people, I think, take this way out of context because you, know, you can celebrate and worship, and you can. You can have fun. You can dance and sing. I have nothing against that. But David danced so hard, he danced his clothes off, and he's dancing naked in front of everybody. <laughs> I've heard people make that ridiculous statement. They don't look at what the word naked means in that respect. Do you remember us talking a few weeks ago about Saul naked before the Lord? It meant he had taken his royal vestments off, his royal garb that he wore, and set it to the side. It was basically in his underwear. Okay? That's what David is. I don't know. Maybe he looks like Tom Cruise in Risky Business, and he comes running across the floor in his underwear. I don't know. You know, that's not a very dignified thing for the king to do, and that's where Michael has a problem. You've embarrassed my, yourself. You know, you've embarrassed me. You have acted like Tom Cruise in front of all our friends, and he's a wacko. Don't act like that. You have embarrassed me. I can't believe this. So David should be on top of the world. He's defeated his enemies. Saul is dead, no longer pursuing him. He's returned the ark to his rightful place. But his personal life doesn't reflect this. Aren't we all good about putting on the exterior look? Who is the most guilty group of people in the world of doing that? They're filled on Sunday mornings. Because we believe that we have to look perfect in front of our friends, in front of our relatives. We have to put on this God is somehow impressed by my piety on Sunday morning and me just getting up and going. God is just thinking, you are the best thing ever. All your friends look at you and go, look how dedicated they are. They're going to church. This is wonderful. And their life is falling apart. That's where we're at in this story. David's defeating his enemies. People are like, he is so awesome. Man, look at this. He's brought the ark back. He is wonderful. And behind the scenes, when he goes home at night, his wife hates him. She despises him. She can't stand what he's doing. So, you know, they have this dynamic. It's awful. We're going to talk a little bit more about that today. What our, our look to the world is and how we need to be careful about how we portray ourselves and not do it in a fake manner. Because that is one of the things that Christians continuously get hit for. But what has driven them to this point in their marriage? Now, we all agree that it wasn't on the best idea. Maybe if they got married, if I were counseling in a premarital session, I would be kind of questioning, ooh, this gal over here, she wants him for who he is in society, and he wants to be in the king's family. He's the only reason he's marrying her. I don't know if this is such a good idea, okay? And the main thing that we can't overlook here is their faith was this far apart, okay? Despite David's faults, he had faith in God. He knew who God was. He knew who the God of the world was. His wife has no idea. She's idolatrous, it says. She worships other gods besides just Jehovah God, as we would call him. You know, you got to realize back in the Old Testament, people were worshiping gods other than our one true God. They just thought he was one among many, he was one of many different paths that you could go. It was just religion to them. And you could worship any God. And this is where Michael's at. But the Bible warns us about this. Jumping into the New Testament, jumping forward in time, in 2 Corinthians 6, it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, and God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Unequally yoked. Anybody that's been raised in church has probably heard that term. You have more than likely heard it very misused. This is not talking about you. If you're rich, you don't marry a poor girl. This is not if you're poor, you don't marry a rich girl. This is if not, not if you're white, you don't marry a black girl. If you're black, you don't marry a white girl. I have heard all those things described as being unequally yoked, and that's just a bunch of nonsense. That is not what Scripture is talking about. What Scripture is talking about is we need to remember, as children of God, our number one thing should be the pursuit of God in our lives. That's where we should be always striving to go. Whatever we do, it's not because it sets a good example for our children. It's not because it's a way to raise our kids right. It's not because it looks good to people around us. It's not because it makes us morally nice people that go and help others. It's because God says we should pursue Him first and foremost. If your spouse is not like that, and you are, that sets up incredible marital strife. Now, and I'm not saying, also seen this done, people who come to know the Lord later in life, I have seen men and women, well, I'm just going to divorce them because they don't believe like I do now. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. That's not the message that, that is being sent here. But again, we try and misuse Scripture to do the things we want. What has actually happened is they have, quote-unquote, fallen out of love with their spouse, and this is an out form. This is an excuse. My spouse is not a Christian, so I'm not going to deal with them anymore. I am holier than that now, and I'm pursuing my God and my Father. That's not what this is talking about. But what it is talking about is don't be stupid and go into the relationship knowing that, Okay? If you're looking for a spouse, you're looking for someone to date, young people especially, but this applies to all ages because it is a very difficult thing in starting a relationship to gauge someone's spirituality, obviously. But, you know, if you decide, well, I'm going to get up and go to church tomorrow, it's important to me, and the person that you're intending to be in a relationship with is like, yeah, whatever. You know, that's going to make it tough on you. And that's what God's saying He's saying, don't go into these relationships knowing this up front because you're not going to be able to be the person you want to be for God because you're always going to be worried about maintaining that relationship and it's going to distract you from God. That's exactly what's happening here with David. He has a wife that is not equally yoked with him. She doesn't believe it. And David's experiencing why we shouldn't marry unbelievers if we're a believer and really are serious about our faith and want to live for God. It is going to bring problems to us. It's going to make every Sunday morning a struggle. Well, why are you getting up and going to church? I don't want to do that. Let's go do so-and-so. You know, if you really love me, you would go do what I want to do instead of going to church. God will understand. God forgives, doesn't he? You're just trying to be holier than me. You're trying to show me up. You're trying to put me down. Those are the conversations that you get into if you do this. Now, if you're in it, pray about it. Keep on trucking and do the things you should do for God. Each in every moment of your life. 
Just keep doing it. And what that means is you are turning your relationship, and this is not your problem. This is God's problem, their faith. You be faithful and do what you are supposed to do, and you will be a shining light to those around you, including your spouse. You know, that's a hard thing for us to realize because what we want to do is we want to jump in and try and fix our spouse and make them believe like we do. That's God's job. That's not ours. And it will drive you crazy and it will destroy your relationship. Again, trying to do these things. But Michael is more worried about appearances than holiness. This is not her gig. She's not worried about this. This is just a God among gods, you know. And now he's making a fool of himself worshiping this God, you know. This is worse than just getting up and going to church without me on Sunday. He's done this in front of everybody. He's made a fool of himself. So and David returns to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today. Does that dripping with sarcasm? Oh, how the king of Israel honored himself today and covered himself today before the eyes of his servants female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. You were dancing vulgarly in front of them women, and I saw you do it. What she's saying, she's taking out of context what David was doing and why he was doing it. David, I don't think, was doing this to impress anyone because we're going to see God's reaction to this whole situation. David was doing this because he was genuinely joyous for what, what had happened, that this was putting god's word out into the world so to speak in that time this was showing this was bringing the ark back this was honoring god and showing that he's a holy god and david was just that's the reason he was doing that and i think at that point in time david's motives were very pure in this and michael was just it embarrassed the fool out of her that her husband had done this and she couldn't stand it he'd you know he'd not only worshiped this god that she could care less about he had embarrassed me in front of him in front of the other females, and it's awful. Well, David now has a way to respond. So David responds to his wife in typical passive-aggressive manner. This is not going to be good, folks. You, if you read this as a man, do not respond to your wife this way. It will not make it better, okay? This is not going to improve your relationship. So David starts out, and David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and all your house. Well, okay, let's start out by making up with our wife by slamming her father. That's not a good move. Yeah, he chose me above your father, and I'll say, to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord, and I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Now, there's a lot of eyes in that statement, isn't there? I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and you're going to like it. And you know what those female servants that you're embarrassed me to do that for? I'm going to do it in front of them again. They're going to like it. That's exactly what he's saying here. He has totally misfocused his relationship. Instead of saying, I did this for God, Michael. I did this because I worship our Lord. I wish you knew God like I knew. I wish you would believe what I believe. I'm, only, I'm sorry if I embarrassed you. I didn't, I didn't do it to embarrass you. I just kind of lost myself in the moment, and I was praising the Lord. I did this not to impress this female servants. That's not why I did this. Oh, no, David just goes down the complete wrong path and makes it worse. Yeah, I did it. I did it because God chose me over your daddy and his family. It's exactly what she's saying. She's got that redneck sass going, you know. I, yeah, 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 we're going this and we're doing that. And I, you know, that's what they're doing. They're bickering back and forth just like all of us do at times in our marriages. And if you don't, you're a liar. <laughs> Amen? It happens. It happens to all of us. We're not perfect. Karen will 
Don't say amen real loud, okay? <laughs> but we all do this. We all have differences of opinion and things. But David goes in and just makes it all about himself and how wonderful he is. That's where, when we're unequally yoked, that you are not being a witness for God to your spouse by saying how good I am and how bad you are. You know, so he goes through this. Well, the result of all this is somewhat tragic, I think. Let's look at what happens. 2 Samuel 6, 23. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Now, I don't know if that's because they, they quit having relations as a, as a couple. I don't know if God struck her as being barren. But there was a reason behind this. The reason behind Michael not having a child was that Saul's descendants were cut off from the throne at this point. Saul had dishonored God, so God did not honor Saul by letting his descendants become into the line of Christ. The line of Saul was cut off at this point through all of this. So now we have gotten to the point of David, and the next thing that happens is a tragic event in his life and leads to all kinds of things. Let's look at David now. When I was studying this, and Mark and even I had this conversation the other day, what led David to want to cheat on his wife or wives? Well, I think we've painted a pretty good picture now. David's having all this success, you know, He's having all the success on the battlefield. He's, he's defeating his enemies. He's brought the ark back home. Saul's dead, but his wife despises him. He can't get along in his relationship with his first wife. Things at home are not good. And what we need to see is that all the drama in David's life has led him to lead a double life. He's the guy that's out praising God and telling how wonderful God is while he's going home and fighting with his wife like cats and dogs and not being the witness to her. Again, we can have disagreements with our spouses, but when you start in with the holier than thou and look at me, look how good a person I am and how crappy a person you are, that is not godly and that is not the way God wants us to manage our relationships. And that's the reason David has so much drama in his household is because of this. So this is setting up David's next big event in his life. This is 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Okay? Well, we need to get some background on this. David's out sending his people. That sounds good. They won. They beat them. They ravaged them. They, they destroyed their enemies. But here's the thing. The king was supposed to be leading his troops in battle. Instead, David stayed behind enjoying the comforts of home. That was not David's place in Israel. That is not the reason God made him lead, leader over the kingdom. David was supposed to be out, not on necessarily the front line with a sword, but he was supposed to be on the battlefield directing this, not delegating it to somebody else to do while he sits and, and sips his wine out on his patio at home, which is basically what he's doing. I mean, let's face it. He's enjoying the comforts of life. He is not going to do that. David should have been out on the battlefield. But being content and distancing ourselves from God is going to lead to trouble. That's what David has done. He knew he was supposed to be on the battlefield, but he's leading the comfy life. He's leading the double life where he's, he's really talking about how much he loves God, but he's also not honoring him and doing what he should be doing. He's just taking the easy road, and God's kind of a side thought. God's the thing we do on every other Sunday or once a month, or maybe once a quarter we go to church and we talk about This is where David's getting. He's getting content with his life, and he's, he's just letting God kind of go by the wayside. And it's led to trouble. Now, here's what happens. It happened 
late one afternoon. That sounds like some kind of novel that it happened late one afternoon. When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. That could be on the back of every romance novel that McKay's has out there in their paperback section. That's the introduction. David was walking alone on his roof in the cool of the evening when he looked at and saw her beauty. That's what it sounds like, does it not? Any of y'all ever frequent McKay's? Okay, there's some ladies out there. I've never seen a guy do this because it really freaked me out. But there's these ladies out there. They will be in front of us with a buggy of these paperback romance. And I am not exaggerating. A buggy heaping full of it. I'm like, what do you do? How do you read that much even? But they're hooked on this. They're hooked on this story of romance and things. And that's what this is, sounds like. It's, you know, now, if it was a Hallmark movie, we'd already know who David's enemy was and that they would get back together and be all cool, right? We all know that. But so David has done this. He has gone out and he has seen this woman. And David could have stopped right there. And he didn't. He looked at her. He took a glance. Do you think he said, oh, my goodness, I shouldn't, I shouldn't see that. I'm married. No, no. He would be the guy that's sitting on his rooftop with his telescope instead of looking at the stars. He's, look, he's looking at the next door neighbor through and going, whoa. That's exactly what he's doing here. He is purposefully looking and entertaining these thoughts in his heart. Now, what does Jesus say about this? He said, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he's already basically in the sin, right? He's already looked. But, you know, he doesn't have to do anything with it. But, next step. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, this is one of his sermons, Is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Uh, dude, she's married. You do know that, don't you? That's what they're saying to him. They're like, you do realize that this, this woman you're asking about and we've got a pretty good idea why you're asking about her and talking about how pretty she is and how beautiful she is. She's married, okay? That's not bad enough, okay? There's more to this story. Do you know who Eliam and Uriah the, Hitt- the Hittite, do you know who those guys are? David's mighty men. I don't know if you've ever heard the story. This was David's equivalent of Navy SEALs. These were his special forces guys. These were warriors among warriors. These were not only the toughest guys, but his most relied upon guys to get the job done when you went to battle. These were the guys that you sent in to do the dirty work. These were the guys you depended on. And now, not only is he he looking at this lady, he realizes now they've told him, Hey, she's the daughter and wife of your special forces guys. Okay, that's going to scare me right away because they're going to come in and they're going to rip my heart out of my chest, right? If I'm going to mess with somebody, you don't mess with them, right? David does not take the warning. He's warned, but he ignores it. They're trying to help him out. They're saying, don't do this. But David is headstrong. This is where we're going to start seeing an unraveling point in in David's life, much like we did with Saul. This is where... David is going to begin putting his needs and desires in front of what God would have for him. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and then she returned to the house. The Bible is very detailed here. What the Bible is saying is she has been on her menstrual cycle. This means that she is through with that, and she can become pregnant. 
Okay, that was the reason she was washing on the roof. David knew that. that it was a ceremonial bath that she, she was taking, so to speak. He knew why she was doing it. He knew she could become pregnant. Is that reckless behavior to the highest degree you could do it? That's exactly, it's like, you know what? She's good looking. I don't care. I'm going to go have sex with her. I don't care. She gets pregnant. Ah, it won't happen. It's what he's thinking. He, is, he would rather engage in risky behavior than deny himself pleasure. Gets so many of us into so much trouble. There's all kinds of things we do. But I want you to listen to this particular point about this story. We always think of David and Bathsheba, and we think this was a sexual sin. Okay? That is not the root sin in this case. David's primary sin wasn't a sexual one. It was the sin of putting his own desires ahead of God. Okay? Now, you don't hear that preached in this passage very often. It's a lot easier to talk about David's lust and his sin there than to talk about David was putting something before God. You know why it's so much easier to talk about that? Because all of us do that part. We have all been guilty of putting things in front of God. That's not a pleasant message to deliver. That's not something we all want to think about. It's a lot easier to think, well, I've not cheated on my wife. I'm not going to cheat on my wife. I'm better than those people. You know, their sin, that's ugly sin. If you're going to, if you're going to do that, that's just wicked and ugly while you're over here gossiping about your neighbor in church, while you're doing, you know, while you're out, you're addicted to drugs or alcohol, and you're using that as your crutch instead of relying on God. You're going out and doing those things. You're engaging in all kinds of reckless behavior because you don't trust God with your life. You want to run your own life, and you want to put things in front of God. That was David's sin. That's all of our sin. And we as the church don't like to talk about that because it's easier to talk about somebody else's sin than ours, right? What is the number one thing that the church, we are always preaching about? And we're not going to get into this topic today. We've talked about it before here. It's gay marriage. We talk about that a lot. You see the church constantly harping on this. God, I believe, condemns that act. I don't believe that's God's plan for us as a people. However, I also don't believe that it's God's plan for us to have three and four spouses either. Right? So we come out as the church because it's easy to talk about sexual sin because we don't like that. We don't do that, so it's, it's okay. We don't, we don't do that kind of stuff in the church. So we can talk about that out in the world, and the church gets a reputation of being judgmental. Why? Because we won't judge our own sins, but we're quick to judge someone else's. And you will see that repeatedly. You'll see it in the media. You will see it everywhere. You know, it is just ludicrous to see, and this happens in politics every day, for someone to get up and preach about the sanctity of marriage that's been married three times. Okay? That makes us look like fools. That's where we're at as a society. The church is the laughing stop because we're not cleaning up things from within and we let anything go. So what is the result of David's sin? Risky behavior. Putting, putting, this in front of, putting his desires in front of God. She comes back and says, I'm pregnant. You know, this was a, this was a humorous conversation I actually had tonight. I don't think Kelly made it this morning. I was out with my good friend Kelly that goes here. And we were talking, and Kelly and I are car guys. We were actually at a car meet last night. He's talking about, he said, this, this is the most horrifying thing I've ever heard. And he was describing this muffler system on an LS1 engine. It was awful. He said, that's the most horrible thing a guy could hear. I said, 
No, I can top that. He said, what? I said, if Heather came and said, I'm pregnant. <laughs> That's a pretty shocking statement, is it not? You're not in a relationship with this person and him. They're, they're a married couple. It's okay. But if you're out and you've been engaging in reckless behavior and this person comes to you and says, hey, I'm pregnant. Oh, wow. Do you think David's wheels started immediately turning? You could see the smoke coming off his head trying to figure this one out. He's trying to figure out, how am I going to get out of this? What in the world has happened? Okay? David could have stopped and confessed what he'd done right here. Okay? Again, you have every opportunity in the world to turn away from sin and repent of it. God gives us those opportunities. David will not take it. Instead of saying, oh my goodness, this is awful. I don't know what to do. I have cheated with the wife and daughter, some of my most valued and respected men in in my organization. I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I have got to confess, and we've got to, I can't make it right. I can't undo what's done. But, you know, I need to honor God and admit that what I did was horribly wrong. I've, I've offended God. I've offended them. I've demeaned her, and I need to make this right. Did David do that? No. He immediately goes into cover-up mode. He's decided that hiding his sin is a better option. So how are we going to hide our sin? Well, in modern day times, the woman would, you know, go to the side, have an abortion, something of that nature. There would be some way that the child was not, was not born, try and hide it from the husband. Those are the ways we would handle it today. Well, David had an alternate plan. Let's look at this. So David sent word to Joab, one of his military leaders, and said, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were going, doing and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. Buttering up Uriah. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his own house. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not just come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, well, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. He's talking about these things are, are in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I'm not going to do that. Like, this wouldn't be right. People are out suffering. They're out sacrificing. I'm not going to go and take advantage of my position and go home and, and lie with my wife and be in comfort. I'm not going to do that. Okay, plan number one. To hope that Uriah goes home and everybody thinks the baby is his has failed. That was his, that was his goal. Going to send Uriah home. We'll all pretend that that's Uriah's baby. We don't have DNA testing in the Old Testament, okay? So they're going to have to pretend that that's his baby. Well, that doesn't work. He wouldn't do it. So David comes up with an alternate plan. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Send Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Okay? Uriah's special forces. Take Uriah, go to the hottest hot spot in the world that you can find, dump him out on the front line, and then kind of back away and let him kill him. That's exactly what he said to do. And the horrible thing is not only this, Uriah delivered this to his superior officer. Uriah sent his own death notice to Joab. 
David is trying so hard to cover up his own sin that he doesn't care how harmful it is to everyone around him. Anybody had a family member that's ever done that to you? It's tough. You know, chaos management on Wednesday nights, we talk a lot about this. We talk a lot about family relationships. We talk about those things. There are people that will say they love you but will destroy you by their actions because their sin, whatever it is they're covering up, whatever it is that is so precious in their life, and it can be a sexual addiction, it can be drugs, it can be alcohol, it can just be addicted, being addicted to self, which is one of David's problems, and everything is about them, and they will make no sacrifices for their family, and they will destroy their family by trying to cover up their own sin. So here's what happens to Uriah. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, who was the military leader, and some of the servants of David among the people fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. David sent him to his death as if he had done it himself. So now, Uriah's dead. We have got this under control. This has been a really bad thing, and our family just needs to put this behind us and not talk about it anymore, right? I mean, you've heard that story. Let's just put it behind us. Let's not deal with it. Let's sweep it under the rug. That's in the past. Don't bring it up. Don't deal with it, and we'll pretend it never happened. That's what David wanted to do. So after... Uriah has died. When the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, I'm not sure how long that period of mourning was. It doesn't sound like it was very heartfelt. You know, pretty much the situation went, hey, you know, I don't know if she knew what David had done either. Scripture's not really real clear about that right there. At that point, that she knows that her husband has died because of what David did. She just knows her husband died in battle. She has mourned him, and David's like, Hey, babe, come on up here. I'll take care of you. It's exactly what he's doing. He has gotten what he wanted all along now. He thinks this is going to be a good deal. He has covered his sin up. But what does it say? God says what he did displeased the Lord. And this is something we need to remember from the New Testament in Mark. It says, For everything that is hidden will eventually be brought into the open, and every secret will be brought to light. Gosh, does that not happen. God has a way of making these things come out where everybody knows them, doesn't he? That is what happens. God does not want us, because he knows it's not healthy for us to dwell in this hidden sin all the time. Somehow, circumstances bring this to light. I will never forget this story. About many years ago, I had an acquaintance. I wouldn't call him a friend necessarily, but an acquaintance. Somebody that I had been working with was hoping to get in church. And he's out riding with his buddy in their pickup truck. And they're riding along. His buddy's sitting over here in the truck. And he says, you know, he's, oh, wait, wait, watch come. Oh, hey, honey, how you doing? Yeah, sweetie, we'll be home a little while. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll do that. All right, love you too, bye. Flips, falling back in the seat. His buddy says, do you not think she's caught on to what you're doing? He said, no, nah, she's stupid. She won't ever know. Have you ever butt-dialed anybody? He didn't hang the phone up. He got home, and all his clothes and belongings were in the front yard by the time he got home. Thank God maybe left his cell phone on for him. You know, those things still happen today. God can bring things to light. It may be a, a crazy story like that, but somehow this is going to happen to David, and it's in direct, a direct result. Okay? Everything that's hidden comes to light. So the Lord sends Nathan to David. Nathan was a prophet. 
And Nathan comes and tells him this story. He says, David, let me tell you this story. You know, just like, I guess it's when the pastor comes to visit. Now, I don't know. He, he came and he hang out and he's the prophet. And Hey, come on in, prophet. Tell me what you got today. The prophet says, well, David, let me tell you this story. There was this man. He was a poor man. And he had this little baby lamb. And he had raised it since it was born. It was the family's pet. It would nuzzle with him and he would rub it. They, it would eat table scraps with the little lamb would sit there and they would eat the table. They would feed it from the table and they loved the little lamb and it was, it was really valued because it was one of the few possessions they had. He was a poor man. He said, but there was this rich man over here. He had all kinds of cattle and herds and sheep and ox and all these things. He was a very rich and powerful man. And he had a friend coming to town and he decided to entertain. We need to have a feast. We need to have a barbecue. So you know what he did, David? He went and got that man's baby lamb and jerked it out from him and fed it to his buddies at a barbecue with their pet. Now, this is the reason, as Josh Murphy can tell you, you don't name your pets if you raise livestock, okay? <laughs> if you're going to eat the pet. Now, would you not be devastated if this rich guy just came and snatched up your pet and barbecued it and gave it to his friends? David was livid. He said, this is a horrible thing. How could this man do this? He should be punished as much as possible. He should have to repay that man, not just give him a land. He should have to give him four back. He should pay for what he's done. This is a horrible thing. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Uh, what do you mean? Uh, I didn't take anybody's sheep. What, what are you talking about? He goes on to continue. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into the arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add as much more. If that wasn't enough for you, I would have done even more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite and, and with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Busted. The prophet has come in whether that was directly driven. You know, and it doesn't say just because Nathan was a prophet that God told him in a dream or something that this is what had happened. You ever considered, you ever heard the, the saying, loose lips sink ships? You don't reckon the mighty men got together and were talking and said, you know what? What David did, that wasn't right, man. I, we know he did that on purpose. There is no reason we would have went into battle and had Uriah do this and put him on the front line. Oh, you know, his wife's pregnant. You don't reckon that David, oh my goodness. Hey, let's go tell the preacher at the church what they did. Let's go tell him. You know what, preacher? I think that maybe David, I think he slept with that Uriah's wife, and he may have had him killed. You know, God reveals things. He uses people to reveal things as well. It's not all a direct dream, but the hidden sin comes out, and David has been busted. Here's what... God's response to David is, and thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Your family will turn against you. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel before the sun. Not only am I going to punish you, there's going to be evil within your house. I'm going to take your wives, give them to your neighbors, and they're going to have sexual relations in front of everybody in the world to see. And I'm taking them away from you and embarrassing you and them. That's what God said to him. That's how, and it wasn't, again, because of sexual sin. 
It was because David had put his own priorities in front of God's. And God is a jealous God, we hear, and God was saying, this is what's going to happen. Now, David was absolutely heartbroken. It wasn't because he had gotten caught. Oftentimes we're sorry because we get caught in things. That was part of the process here for David, obviously, was getting caught in his sin. But he realized what he had done. He realized that the depth of his sin, and he realized how displeased God was. And even though David truly repents and realizes what he has done before God, there's still consequences. Even though he's done this, there are still consequences to his actions. And we need to understand that, guys. When we do something wrong in life, we can't always pray away the consequences. God loves us. God honors our prayers. But there are things that we suffer because of those consequences. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. Your sin. God recognizes your contrite heart that you really do realize the depth of what you've done and you want to be right with him. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord and the child who is born to you shall die. Tragically, the child that Bathsheba was pregnant with passed away. David prayed, he fasted, he did everything and pleaded with God and yet the child still died. Seems cruel, doesn't it? Seems like God was just punishing him. I don't know how all of that works. There's a lot of things God does that I don't understand. There are people that suffer in this life that I think are good people. There are bad people that don't suffer. You know, it's up to God. And we need to realize that. And he always has a purpose in this. But one of the results of all this is that God can restore our lives if we will turn to him. That's the difference in David's life. He turned to God. He said, God, I have done something that is horrible in front of you. It's a sin against these people. It's a sin against you. I realize it, God. I want to turn my life around right now and begin serving you like I should. That's what David did. And because of that, and because of his heart's attitude, David went in and comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and she called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. Does that make up for the tragedy of losing Bathsheba's child that they had together? No, it doesn't. You know, it's people, it's relationships, it's emotions. You can't just simply replace one with another like you would get a new pet. You know, that's not the way it works when we realize that. However, there's a bigger picture in mind for us, okay? God has promised Israel a Messiah, okay? Saul's bloodline was cut off. Remember, we were talking about that a few minutes ago. His lineage was cut off from this. However, David's is not cut off, and Solomon is a direct descendant of Jesus Christ. See how God took a horrible situation and used it for his good? Used it so that he would be glorified? Used it so that the people involved would learn who God was and would trust him and honor and love him? That's what it's all about. There's a bigger picture always at work in Scripture that we may not even see. And it works in our lives every day. There may be circumstances and things we don't understand that God is working on a level that we can't understand. But always, God is trying, is, and will honor those who honor Him. And that's the lesson to be learned today is that to put God first. Don't do like David did. Don't put other things in your life ahead of God. And God will honor that. 
And if you have done that, it's not the end of the road for you. It's not something that can't be forgiven. If God can forgive you for impregnating a woman that's not your wife, is married to someone else, and having their husband killed, do you think you've done anything worse than that? There's absolutely nothing that, is, that we can do that God can't forgive us of. But on the same token, don't think that your little sins don't mean as much to God as that does as well. Examine your life. And there's something there this morning that you need to confess to God and you need to start down the right path. You can do it in the next few moments and walk out of here a different person. And that's why we do what we do here. We want you guys to realize and know God has a plan for your life. It involves Him at the center of it. And if you'll do that, He'll honor you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for these fantastic stories we're getting from from the life of David and Saul. And, and God, it's encouraging to see that there are others that we know you understand how, the, how things went there. And you've, you've provided in Scripture a means for us to understand in our own lives what has happened, God, how that we can take these lessons and apply them to our own lives. And that, God, while we may have not done the, the exact same sins as David, we've all had the one sin of putting things in front of you and what you would have in our lives. Just pray this morning, God, that if there's anyone here that, that needs to examine their life in that area, God, that they'll just, they'll just come and, and fall before you and say, God, I've, I've done wrong, and I, I pray that you'll forgive me. And from this point forward, I want to honor you and start a new life today. Lord, if there's someone here that hasn't put their faith in Christ to do this, Lord, I, I pray this very morning they'll, they'll recognize that all of this is made possible by Jesus' sacrifice, that he died so that these sins that we commit could be forgiven by his Father. And Lord, that we could have eternal life with him if we would only believe that Jesus died for our sins, he was buried and rose again, and that covers the sins that we have committed in the past and that we'll commit in the future, and that we can have our place in a relationship with God the Father if we'll just believe that. If there's someone here that hasn't gone down that path, God, I pray that they will they will make that decision today, Lord. Just pray that you'll be with us. Help us to apply this to our lives this week. And we thank you so much for allowing us to do this. In Jesus' name.